Chapter Two of Abraham Lincoln: A History, Volume Three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Abraham Lincoln: A History, Volume Three, by John Hay and John George Nicolay. Chapter Two: Personal Liberty Bills. The Declaration of Causes and its accompanying address, which the South Carolina Convention put forth to justify secession, both deal in such ambiguous phrases and vague generalities that in the main they betray their own weakness and insufficiency, and the critical student finds the same defect in the whole deluge of Southern rhetoric spoken and written to defend the rebellion. If any denial or refutation of many of the allegations they contained were needed, it is conveniently furnished by an authority whose competency the Southern people themselves cannot deny. Alexander H. Stevens, who was soon afterwards elected Vice President of the Confederate States, made the following frank criticism, which is all the more valuable that it was written in a confidential letter to his brother and remained unpublished till after the war. I have read the address put forth by the convention at Charleston to the southern states. It has not impressed me favorably. In it, South Carolina clearly shows that it is not her intention to be satisfied with any redress of grievances. Indeed, she hardly deigns to specify any. The slavery question is almost entirely ignored. Her greatest complaint seems to be the tariff, though there is but little intelligent or intelligible thought on that subject. Perhaps the less she said about it, the better. For the present tariff from which she secedes is just what her own senators and members in Congress made it. There are general and vague charges about consolidation, despotism, etc., and the South having, under the operation of the general government, been reduced to a minority incapable of protecting itself, etc. This complaint I do not think well-founded. It arises more from a spirit of peevishness or restless fretfulness than from calm and deliberate judgment. The truth is, the South, almost in mass, has voted, I think, for every measure of general legislation that has passed both houses and become law for the last ten years. Indeed, with but few exceptions, the South has controlled the government in its every important action from the beginning. The protective policy was once for a time carried against the South, but that was subsequently completely changed. Our policy ultimately prevailed. The South put in power, or joined a united country in putting in power and sustaining the administration of Washington for eight years. She put in and sustained Jefferson eight years, Madison eight years, Jackson eight years, Van Buren four years, Tyler four years, Polk four years, Pierce four years, and Buchanan four years. That is, they have aided in making and sustaining the administration for 60 years out of the 72 of the government's existence. Does this look like we were or are in an abject minority at the mercy of a despotic northern majority, rapacious to rob and plunder us? It is true we are in a minority and have been a long time. It is true also that a party at the North advocate principles which would lead to a despotism, and they would rob us if they had the power. I have no doubt of that. 
but by the prudent and wise counsels of southern statesmen this party has been kept in the minority in the past and by the same prudent and wise statesmanship on our part i can but hope and think it can be so for many long years to come on one point however the south carolina declaration of causes attempted to be specific saying that fourteen of the states have deliberately refused for years past to fulfill their constitutional obligations the states of maine new hampshire vermont massachusetts connecticut rhode island new york pennsylvania illinois indiana michigan wisconsin and iowa have enacted laws which either nullify the acts of congress or render useless any attempt to execute them these acts were popularly known as personal liberty bills and since mr stevens in the same letter we have quoted also declares that they constitute the only cause in my opinion which can justify secession the subject demands a careful examination we shall see how under analysis the personal liberty bills also dwindle into ridiculous insignificance as a motive for disunion and war it was a chronic evil in the system of slavery that slaves would run away from their masters the liberty of which a hostile tribe robbed the ancestor in africa the children would strive to regain to the latest generation anywhere under the sun the master was a perpetual jailer but his single vigilance was not enough to hold his captive he required the help of the entire community even this was insufficient he needed also the assistance of bordering states when the constitution of the united states was formed the movement towards the abolition of slavery in the northern states was already in progress the delegates from the south considered it a great gain that instead of being obliged to depend upon the separate action of each northern state for the recovery of their runaways under the mere obligation of international comity they obtained an express provision in the constitution guaranteeing the delivery of their fugitive slaves from any state in the union ownership being thus acknowledged throughout the whole nation but as yet no legal machinery existed to carry out this constitutional provision and it is a curious historical fact that the first national fugitive slave law grew not out of the effort of a negro slave to obtain his freedom by flight but out of the circumstance that three white virginians kidnapped a free colored man from pennsylvania and sold him into slavery and no less noteworthy is the example which the state of virginia set of fulfilling constitutional obligations the event happened in the year seventeen eighty eight the offenders were in due time indicted and the governor of pennsylvania requested the governor of virginia to deliver them up for trial under another clause of the constitution the governor of virginia refused to surrender the kidnappers returning for answer the opinion of his attorney general that there existed no laws to carry out the constitution in this particular and also laying down the following broad legal principles every free man in virginia is entitled to the unmolested enjoyment of his liberty unless it be taken away by the constitution or laws of the united states or by the constitution or laws of virginia no molestation seizure or removal of his person can take place but under the authority of those or some of them 
President Washington appears to have transmitted the official correspondence about this affair to Congress, which in 1793 enacted a law containing provisions and machinery for a twofold object. First, the surrender of criminals for trial. Second, the delivery of fugitives from service or labor. Thus, at the very beginning, the twin subjects of kidnapping and flight from slavery formed the double reason for, and incidentally the double subject of, the first fugitive slave law. The machinery of this law was very simple. The owner, his agent or attorney, finding the slave in a free state, might seize or arrest him, take him before a magistrate, and having satisfactorily proved that the slave was his property, receive from the magistrate a certificate to that effect, which certificate authorized the owner to carry his slave to the state from which he escaped. Anyone obstructing or hindering the execution of the law or knowingly harboring or concealing such fugitive was punishable by a fine of five hundred dollars. This law, it will be perceived in its chief provision, violated a broad fundamental principle of both English and American liberty in omitting to provide trial by jury in a question of right to personal freedom. But as slavery was an anomaly in American government, so every slave law was necessarily an anomaly in American jurisprudence. To repeat a definition we have before employed, the system being barbarous, it could only be maintained by barbarous safeguards. The difficulty of legislation arose from the fact that the slave had a double character. He was both a piece of property and a person. The law must be framed to counteract not merely the intelligence of the human being seeking freedom, but it must also counteract the sympathy of other human beings willing to lend him assistance. Hence, summary process and the denial of the ordinary legal remedies. But the exceptional character of the law was probably little thought of. It was passed amid a public sentiment accepting such incongruities as necessary and therefore proper. Apparently, it provoked little contest in Congress. The House of Representatives passed it by a vote of yeas, 48, nays, 7. It only needs the statement of the origin and provisions of this first fugitive slave law to show that the slave system was a matter of grave concern, not merely to the states in which it existed, but also to every free state in the Union. To permit the owner to catch his absconding slave placed every free person of color in a certain jeopardy. It was a matter of common notoriety that professional slave traders and slave catchers were, as a class, men of coarse, hardened, unscrupulous natures. In the South, in slave communities, they were the pariahs of society. For such men, trained in the arts and wiles of their calling, it was a vastly easier and quicker stroke of business to kidnap an ignorant, free Negro, living in a lonely shanty on the outskirts of a quiet village, than to earn the price of their victim by honest work. It was thus an imperative duty of free communities and states to enact and maintain rigid laws for the protection of the personal liberty of such citizens, and it was probably due to this class of laws in the free states that the evil did not become a crying public scandal. The Fugitive Slave Law of 1793 remained without notable incident in its administration for nearly half a century. As a rule, the free states passed laws on the one hand to assist in carrying out the act of Congress, 
and on the other hand providing certain precautionary regulations to prevent kidnapping. In the year 1842, however, there was announced a decision of the Supreme Court of the United States which radically changed public opinion and legislative action on this subject. In a case brought up by amicable proceedings between the states of Maryland and Pennsylvania, the Supreme Court decided that under the Constitution there existed a positive, unqualified right on the part of the owner of the slave, which no state law or regulation could in any way qualify, regulate, control, or restrain. The owner of a slave was clothed with entire authority in every state in the Union to seize and recapture his slave whenever he could do it, without any breach of the peace or illegal violence. In this sense, and to this extent, this clause of the Constitution might properly be said to execute itself, and required no aid from legislation, state or national, that the power of legislation on the subject was exclusive in Congress, and by implication prohibited all state legislation on the same subject. A result probably unexpected by the Supreme Court, and certainly not looked for by southern states, followed the announcement of this remarkable decision. The court had, by a breath, annulled all state legislation either to restrain or to assist the owner in recovering his runaway. It had even superseded and declared useless the Act of Congress of 1793. It sent forth the slave owner with simply the letter of the Constitution for his warrant to go into any free state, lay his hand upon whomever he might claim, and carry him away into bondage. He was to be his own officer and his own judge and jury. It is painfully in evidence that at that day judicial interpretation by the Supreme Court was still under the influence of strong pro-slavery sentiment. In the long opinions of the court and individual judges, the master's right to slave property is continually treated as a, of higher constitutional concern than any black man's right to personal liberty. In declaring the owner's right to seize and remove his slave under the constitutional provision that persons held to service or labor shall be delivered up, no mention is made of that other equally binding constitutional provision that no person shall be deprived of liberty without due process of law. It is not surprising that this dictum created a profound reaction and a significant legislative movement followed in the free states. In varying forms, such laws as had to some extent been framed to aid the claimant were repealed, and others enacted having for their sole object the protection of free citizens of color, either by agency of the writ of habeas corpus or by prohibiting officers and citizens of the state from lending any assistance in the capture of fugitive slaves, either under the act of Congress or voluntarily. But in most instances, these laws in express terms disavowed any intention to impair or interfere with the owner's constitutional right of property. They simply threw him back upon his federal rights and resources. As the Virginia kidnappers were the cause of the first fugitive slave law, so this Supreme Court decision was the cause of the first personal liberty bills. Under this condition of affairs, they came on the great slavery agitation of 1850, and as one phase of that controversy, the South demanded a new and more effective fugitive slave law. 
Since 1793, the difficulties were aggravated in all directions. Pro-slavery sentiment and anti-slavery sentiment were both more intense and more uncompromising. There were more slaves in the slave states to escape and more free blacks in the free states liable to unlawful seizure. The master's authority had been increased by the Supreme Court decision, while his resources were diminished by state legislation. Upon the controverted question whether state authority or federal authority ought to act, there were as sharp differences in the South as in the North. On the question of violating or executing the Constitution, the debate showed that in the past one section had transgressed about as much and obeyed about as much as the other section. The fundamental question, however, remained, should the person claimed be fairly tried? Mr. Webster proposed an amendment that he should have a jury trial at the place where he was arrested. Mr. Clay reported in favor of a jury trial at the place he fled from. As between these two propositions, the issue was tersely summarized by Mr. Winthrop. It must always be a question, said he, whether such a person be your slave or whether he be our free man. Now, whether he be your slave might be a question very proper to be tried by a jury of the vicinage and to be decided on the spot where the professed owner resides. But whether he be our free man would seem to be a question which, upon the very same principle, should be tried where he is seized and where the immediate liberty which he enjoys is about to be taken away from him. But Mr. Mason, representing the more ultra-Southern view, opposed any jury trial and insisted on summary proceedings. This view prevailed, and the act which finally passed, besides denying jury trial, contained certain other harsh features that made it peculiarly obnoxious to anti-slavery citizens and communities, and while it increased the claimant's facilities for recapture, also greatly intensified the public opinion of the free states against the law. This new Fugitive Slave Act was mainly the work of Mr. Mason of Virginia, a man of intolerant pro-slavery views, and afterwards a conspicuous secession conspirator, and appears to have been passed with but slight discussion, the attention of Congress being centered upon other, and at the moment more absorbing, features of the compromise measures of 1850. It passed the Senate, August 23, by a vote of 27 to 12, and the House on the 12th of September, by a vote of 109 to 76, and was approved on the 18th of September by President Fillmore. The act provided that all United States commissioners concurrently with judges of United States courts should have authority to issue warrants for the arrest of fugitive slaves, which warrants should be served by marshals or deputy marshals, or the commissioners might appoint suitable persons to execute the warrants or process issued by them, to cause fugitives to be arrested and brought before them, to hear and determine the case of the claimant in a summary manner, and upon satisfactory proof that by deposition and affidavit of the identity of the fugitive and that the person arrested owed the service or labor alleged and had escaped to make out and deliver to such claimant his agent or attorney a certificate of the facts. The fugitive might thereupon be taken back or the commissioner might cause him to be taken back to the state or place whence he fled. The testimony of the alleged fugitive was not admitted in evidence rescuing or concealing such fugitive or hindering his capture or aiding his escape 
directly or indirectly, was punishable by a fine not exceeding $1,000 and imprisonment not exceeding six months, with civil damages to the party injured of $1,000 for each fugitive so lost, and the officers were authorized to summon and call to their aid the bystanders or posse comitatus of the proper county who were hereby commanded to aid and assist in the prompt and efficient execution of this law. The commissioner should receive a fee of $10 when he delivered the fugitive and only $5 in case where the proof shall not, in the opinion of such commissioner, warrant such certificate and delivery, and the certificate should prevent all molestation of persons removing the fugitive by any process issued by any court, judge, magistrate, or other person whomsoever also that the claimant might seize and arrest a fugitive and take him before the commissioner or court without process it was argued with much warmth that this act virtually offered the commissioner a bribe to return the fugitive that it violated four different provisions of the constitution of the united states namely the seventh amendment which prescribes that in suits at common law when the value in controversy shall exceed twenty dollars the right of trial by jury shall be preserved the fifth amendment that no person shall be deprived of liberty without due process of law the fourth amendment that the right of the people to be secure in their persons against unreasonable seizure shall not be violated and section nine of article one that the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended unless when in case of rebellion and invasion the public safety may require it aside from the denial of trial by jury the other feature of the fugitive slave law of seventeen ninety three embodied only such legal principles as applied to the recovery of other property the whole labor of the recovery was put upon the claimant or his hired or voluntary help he was obliged himself to seize his runaway slave just as he was obliged himself to seize his runaway horse that law forced no one to assist him it only required that no one should hinder him but the new law compelled every citizen of a free state when summoned to do so to become a slave-catcher for the claimant under penalty of fine and imprisonment no wonder that the dignity and humanity of respectable citizens of the north revolted at the idea of being forced to do what a judge of the supreme court of the united states though himself a zealot in enforcing the law fitly chronicles as a most dangerous and disgusting duty for the mere selfish and pecuniary advantage of a distant slaveholder while to conscientious minds it was the commission of a positive moral and religious transgression the law was scarcely passed when there ensued and for many years continued an unwanted activity in the pursuit and capture of runaways in various parts of the north from time to time the newspapers were full of sensational reports of the incidents and excitements attending such affairs persons in the free states were pursued seized handcuffed gagged bludgeoned or shot free persons were sometimes carried away to slavery and escaped slaves sometimes rescued by mobs once a slave mother crazed by the agony of recapture cut the throat of one of her children and attempted in the same way to kill three others to prevent their being carried back to bondage and once the city of boston was put into ferment and riot requiring a strong military guard to bring away the captured fugitive to a federal revenue cutter ordered by the president of the united states to convey him from massachusetts bay to virginia 
newspapers criticized and lawyers debated the law and the proceedings judges delivered learned opinions and courts rendered varying decisions even under the provocation of these and other inflammatory incidents eight to ten years elapsed before the public opinion of the north began to embody itself in hostile legislation it was not till these slave-hunting disturbances which began in eighteen fifty had been supplemented by the rising and culminating events of the great pro-slavery reaction the repeal of the missouri compromise the kansas war the sumner assault the dred scott decision the demand for a congressional slave code and the raid of john brown and his capture and execution that the legislatures of several free states remodeled their statutes and passed new and more stringent personal liberty bills to better protect free colored persons against being kidnapped or as far as possible to evade and counteract the enforcement of the law in most of these new statutes care was taken to shelter them under the theory of states rights so tenaciously asserted and industriously propagated by the south and to avoid the appearance at least of a direct conflict with federal laws though it was doubtless the intention of the framers of some of them practically to nullify the fugitive slave act but with only occasional exceptions the general course in the free states was a practical enforcement of the fugitive slave law of eighteen fifty despite the fact that its arbitrary features were odious to the moral and legal sense of public opinion the decided preponderance of judicial decisions sustained it and in eighteen fifty eight the supreme court of the united states by a unanimous judgment declared that the act of congress commonly called the fugitive slave law is in all its provisions fully authorized by the constitution of the united states so also the census of eighteen sixty showed that while in that year the total number of fugitive slaves was a hundred and three the total number in ten years before under the census of eighteen fifty had been one thousand eleven proving an actual decrease of escapes under what the south alleged to have been an intentional legal increase of opportunity and assistance through personal liberty bills it is interesting to note in this connection that as a rule the most violent outcry on this subject came from southern states which lost the fewest slaves south carolina which would not remain in the union lost in eighteen sixty but twenty-three slaves or an average of one out of seventeen thousand five hundred and one kentucky which would not be dragged out of the union lost one hundred and nineteen or an average of one out of one thousand eight hundred and ninety five moreover the total average loss was absurdly insignificant as compared with risks in other kinds of property as for example of houses burned or crops destroyed by bad weather such loss in slaves being only about one-fiftieth of one per cent for the whole south and only a little more than one two hundredth of one per cent for the complaining nullifying seceding state of south carolina but whatever may have been the violations of the constitution by free states through personal liberty bills the slave states were not guiltless of similar infractions it was notorious that pro-slavery sentiment rendered the constitutional right of freedom of speech or of the press and rights of domicile and of citizenship practically a dead letter throughout the south to all men of strong anti-slavery convictions nor did this violation manifest itself alone in the form of public opinion many of the slave states had penal statutes prohibiting what they chose to term incendiary publications and some of them statutes of this character to punish incendiary expression 
So also South Carolina and other seaboard slave states had laws to imprison free colored seamen for no crime whatever, but merely as a precaution against the possibility of their uttering abolition sentiment or instigating servile insurrection. And more flagrant still, South Carolina had a statute authorizing her governor to expel a citizen of Massachusetts who had come to that state by authority of his own governor and legislature for the purpose of beginning a suit to test the validity of the last mentioned law. Finally, it was no secret that the law was violated every now and then by surreptitious instances of the slave trade. No principle of equity, therefore, could justify the South in secession and rebellion on account of northern personal liberty bills. Especially was this true when secession and rebellion seized upon the election of Mr. Lincoln as the occasion for such reprisal. A strong reaction in the North in favor of repealing the more questionable features of the personal liberty bills had set in, and movements to that end were in progress in the legislatures of several northern states. More important than all was the fact that Mr. Lincoln himself held a proper fugitive slave law to be constitutional. In the Freeport debate, he thus answered Douglas's question on this point. I have never hesitated to say, and I do not now hesitate to say, that I think under the Constitution of the United States, the people of the southern states are entitled to a congressional fugitive slave law. Further than that, I think it should have been framed so as to be free from some of the objections that pertain to it without lessening its efficiency. And the opinion was quite as distinctly reiterated in his inaugural address. But while willing to accord to the South this constitutional right, he did not forget the rights due to all free citizens of the North. For his inaugural address also said, in any law upon this subject ought not all the safeguards of liberty known in civilized and humane jurisprudence to be introduced, so that a free man be not in any case surrendered as a slave, and might it not be well at the same time to provide by law for the enforcement of that clause in the Constitution, which guarantees that the citizen of each state shall be entitled to all privileges and immunities of citizens in the several states. Had the South been content to pursue legislative remedies instead of making war, it is quite possible that the questions about fugitive slaves could have been brought to some endurable compromise. Unconstitutional personal liberty bills, on the one hand, might have been repealed by state legislatures, and the unconstitutional provisions of the fugitive slave law, on the other, repealed by Congress. Both the Supreme Courts of States and the Supreme Court of the United States might have ultimately modified their decisions toward a better mutual accord. The runaway slave could have received a jury trial at the place of his capture and the master been reimbursed in money damages in case of his unlawful rescue by mobs. But the predetermined action of the Southern conspirators made argument and compromise impossible. The proclamation of a Southern Confederacy by Jefferson Davis and his associate signers on the 14th of December and the secession of South Carolina on the 20th were a practical bar to any adjustment through legislative channels. End of chapter 2